Good morning, beloved. Ephesians 6, we will continue and we will conclude our study on the whole armor of God this morning. So let me reread it, I'll pray, and then we'll look at it together. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition, for all the saints, and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this Lord's Day morning, in which we gather together to lift up your name, to proclaim your name. To hear from you. Guide us this hour to learn and understand more of the armor to put on Christ and prepare us to worship this morning. We ask for his sake. Amen. Uh, well, we're called to put on the panoply of God, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, to put on the whole armor of God so as to stand against the schemes of the devil, to stand against the wiles, the lies, the deceit of the devil. For our struggle, that is our wrestling, is not, as we just read, against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Um, The goal of wrestling, of course, was to stand. Paul here mentions standing four times Um, in his closing appeal to the church of Ephesus. So he's stating, look, you need to hold your ground. Two things that we're supposed to do with the enemy. Stand and resist. Take up the whole armor of God. We've looked at the belt of truth. Uh, The application thereof was to gird up the loins of our mind in truth. Everything begins with truth. Therefore, is a response, we're to walk in truthfulness, to be truthful, live truthfully, having on the breastplate of righteousness, that is, not, not the imputed righteousness of Christ, but because of the imputed righteousness of Christ, um, live out the imparted righteousness of Christ. Have on your feet um, shoes shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of what? 
peace. That is to stand on the fact that in Christ you have peace with God. The enmity is over in Christ Jesus. That's the good news. Take up the shield of faith so as to be able to quench all the fiery darts of temptation that will be launched at you from the enemy. Last time, we looked at the helmet of salvation. He says, take up the helmet of salvation, not referring to salvation in an objective sense, but the conscious possession of it amidst the assaults of the evil one. So with, with the Christian's head protected with regard to salvation, um, that is the possession of salvation, he can rest assured, he can have confident assurance in every aspect of salvation, past, present, and future. The doctrines of justification, sanctification, and glorification. Past, present, and future. Take up the helmet of salvation. You have been saved, you are being saved, and you will ultimately be saved. That's the idea. And then today, um, the command is to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit is the Word that comes from the Spirit. Notice that the Spirit is himself not the sword. The Spirit's not the sword. The Word is the sword, and the Spirit provides the sword. Metaphorically speaking, the Holy Spirit places the sword, the Word, um, in our hands. And this part of the armor is the, the covering of Scripture. The Word of God is the only sword the Spirit uses. All wisdom dwells within Him. Third person of the Godhead, Holy Spirit. He who is the third person of the Trinity. So the Word is the sword of the Holy Spirit uh, because it's been crafted by him. The Holy Spirit wrote this book, the Word of God, through holy men. Divine authorship. Now, the Bible, as you know, makes um, great claims of itself. So let's consider what they are. First, we read that the word is God-breathed. It's God-breathed. It's sufficient. 2 Timothy 3.16, if you're taking notes, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The word of God. It's God-breathed. Second, the Bible claims to be infallible, that is, incapable of error, infallible, incapable of error in its entirety. Psalm 19.7, we read, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The Bible also claims to be inerrant, that is, free from error, infallible in its entirety, free from error in its parts. It's infallible, incapable of error, inerrant. It is free of all error, from all error. Every word of God 
Proverbs 30, verse 5, is perfect. The Bible claims to be divine. Divine, rather than human in origin. 1 Peter 1, verse 20, we read, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any what? Private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The Bible also claims to be authoritative. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2, we read, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. The Word of God is effective. Isaiah 55 says that it shall prosper, God says, what I please. It shall prosper in the thing for which I, God, sent it. And the Bible claims also to be complete. Revelation 22. There is no new revelation being given today, beloved. The canon's closed. We have the word of God. We test all things in light of the scripture. Okay, so let's look at the sword. Um, First, a little uh, historical background before we look at the spiritual application. Um, In in the ancient world of battle, there were two um, kinds of swords. There was the long, broad sword, 36 to 40 inches long, um, a broad cutlass intended to crush skulls, to decapitate the enemy. There was a smaller sword. It was more like a dagger, a straight sword for hand-to-hand combat. Uh, the broad sword is what's referred to as the Ramphia sword. Um, I mean, you would wield it like a baseball bat overhead. You just come out swinging it like this. Whereas the Machaira, another kind of sword, um, was that dagger that was 12 to um, 18 inches in length. It was a straight sword used for hand to hand combat. Verse 17 refers to the second, the Machaira, the, the, the long or the um, shorter of the two. Used in hand-to-hand combat, it was always at hand, it was attached to the belt, it was on the, uh, um, um, up high in, in a sheath on the right side um, of the soldier. And it had to be used with precision, with great accuracy knowing where to thrust it into your enemy to kill him. Yeah, that's the idea. So how does this then relate to the Christian life? That's, that's the question. Quite simply, beloved, if we're going to engage the spirit of this age, we must be people of the word. Knowing what it means by what it says. So this raises the question... Um, What is the word for the word of God in verse 17? The the New Testament speaks of two main uses of the word for word. You're all familiar with the first, the the logos. The logos. Something said, um, including the thought. It's the principle of divine reason. It's the mind and the wisdom um, of God. 
God's logos is his self-expression in creation, wisdom, in revelation, in salvation. When we get to the gospel of John, it is the divine expression of the incarnate God himself, Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the logos, right? In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, and the logos became flesh and tabernacled among us. The divine expression of Logos in a human body is Jesus. Now, the, the, the other word for word is rhema. And that means um, a specific statement, a particular word of God. It indicates um, something spoken, something from out of all of Scripture. Particular instruction, if you will particular writing. For instance, in in, uh, Romans 10, verse 17, we read this, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. It reads like this in the Greek, faith comes by hearing a rhema, a specific statement about Christ. True saving faith comes from God as one believes in the specific gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Ephesians 6.17, it's not a reference to the whole Bible as such, but rather to the individual scripture which the Spirit of God brings to our remembrance for use in time of need. Particular word. Not generalizations about the Bible as a whole, but specifics of the Word of God. Rhema. So, Logos, think of it as the written scriptures, the entirety of the written Word of God, whereas Rhema is a specific truth within the larger writing of God. This is what we're after. It's not independent of the written word of God, but comes out of the written word of God. It's a specific portion of God's divinely inspired word. It's a statement out of the written word. It's a passage or a part of the written word to be applied in particular areas of our life. Ramah. Applied to specific circumstances, temptations, and so on. With regard to the uh, immediate need of the moment, we must know what it means by what it says. People can, you know, I know people who can quote all kinds of scripture. Their doctrine's terrible, awful. So for every attack of Satan, God has a sure defense in his word. The only way to overcome him, John Calvin writes, is by keeping to the word of God in its entirety. So that this rhema then, that this particular word is to be wielded offensively and defensively to deal with the exact 
temptations thrown to us by way of the enemy. So we must strike back with truth when we're personally tempted. The sword, we strike back. We must force the sword of truth anytime the church as a whole is attacked with false doctrine. That's why we're given to the word here. We teach it in Sunday school. We, we preach it during the service. We teach it to men on Thursdays. We teach it to women on Tuesdays. The home groups study the word of God. This is why. You're excited about that this morning, aren't you? So we, mu- we must lance the blow with truth when the forces of evil seek to implant um, the world around us constantly in our face. So we have to cut a swath, if you will, through the philosophies of man, the traditions of man, godless, politically, political correctness in our day with regard to cultural ethics We slice through with the word of God. We don't adopt their thinking. We test it. Amen? So we have to know what it means. And of course, we raise the sword of truth for the sinner's freedom by way of fearless proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not many ways to God. It's the only avenue to God. It's Jesus, the Christ, Son of the living God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me, said Jesus, the Word. So, there must be a proper use of God's Word in specific situations. Take up the sword of the Spirit. Now, sometimes Christians will open their Bible... They'll just do this. Slam their finger down in in a particular text, some random text, and they declare that this is God's word of the day for me. Let's see what God says to me this morning. Hmm. So perhaps in a time of discouragement, they open up to Matthew 27, 5, they slap their finger down in it, and and they read this. Judas departed from the temple, and he went out and he hanged himself. And you go, well, that doesn't sound good. That's not encouraging. Let me try it again. Luke 10, 37. Then Jesus said, go and do likewise. (laughs) Two texts that have nothing to do with one another. Amen? Now, that sounds silly, and that's an extreme example, but it's not far from the truth. Listen to this. Habakkuk 1.5, be utterly astounded, says the prophet, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe though it were told you. Friends, I've heard pastors that I worked with in the past, I've heard ministry leaders quote that verse with regard to all the great things God is going to do through their particular ministry. Things that we can't begin 
to grasp if it were told to us. That's a classic case of biblical eisegesis rather than exegesis. Exegesis is, is taking from the text what it means by what it says. Here's the context. Okay, now, the context of that passage in Habakkuk has to do with the imminent judgment of God that would come by way of invasion, Assyrian invasion. Paul, the apostle, quotes that same text in Acts chapter 13. For those who reject Jesus Christ, he says they will suffer the same fate. Now, you want to use that for your ministry? Silly, nonsense. They just haphazardly, you don't play fast and loose with the scripture. Haphazardly apply it to my great grand ministry. It has nothing to do with that. And it, see, and that's the problem with making the Bible about me. The hermeneutical key of understanding scripture is not you and it's not me. What's the hermeneutical key to understanding all the scripture? Jesus. John or Genesis 3:15 on. It's all about Jesus. See, when your hermeneutical key is you, you'll come to texts like 2 Samuel chapter 17 where David slays, slays um, um, Goliath. Familiar? And you'll say things like this. This is about slaying the giants in your life. <sighs> Those enemies set against you. You need to select five smooth stones with which to conquer your enemies in this life. What is that? That's nonsense. It happens all the time. Someone just told me this week they were in a meeting somewhere else and they used this text and that was the application. You completely miss the redemptive historic outworking of God in that text that has to do with God's faithfulness in preserving a line of people through whom his one and only son will emerge. Through the line of David, Jesus, the root and offspring of David. That's what that's about. Who will come and conquer and crush the ultimate enemies of sin, death, and Satan by way of the cross. That's what that text is about. Not slaying the giants in your life. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable, 2 Timothy 3.16, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. It's not only the word of God that calls us to salvation, it's the word of God that is there to build us up, it is to equip us, it is to correct us, instruct us, uh, rebuke us, and to sanctify us, conforming us to the image of Christ. Rhema. 
So we need to know what it means by what it says. So, so Paul says here, um, it is an essential component of the Christian's battle against these unseen forces of evil, these principalities and powers arrayed against us, vital that we possess the sword of the Spirit. Rightly dividing the word of truth, knowing what this means by what it says, knowing what Habakkuk 1.5 means by what it says, knowing what 2 Samuel 17 means by what it says. We are to wage war and resist the enemy as Jesus did out in the wilderness as he himself was tempted by the devil himself, Satan. And he responded with the word, the rhema, with each and every temptation. He, 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 he responded with the word. Let's look at that. Luke 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. You think? And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me. I give it to whomever I wish. Who was it originally given to? Adam. Who delivered it up to? Satan. Adam was given dominion over the whole world. It was given up to me, given over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, it shall be all yours. What was Jesus' promise from the Father? All the kingdoms of the world. How? By way of the cross. Death, resurrection, ascension. Upon his ascension, he receives from the Father, the ancient of days, all the kingdoms of the earth. Daniel 7. The temptation was to bypass the cross. He led him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. Classic case of eisegesis, making the text mean what you want it to mean. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until what? An opportune time. If he'll leave Jesus and wait for an opportune time, he'll wait for an opportune time for you and me. The evil day. When temptation, desire, 
an opportunity, all what? Meet, creating the perfect storm. And again, I get that from Sinclair Ferguson. So notice in Luke 4, first of all, it's interesting how the genealogy ends in chapter 3, verse 38. Notice, with the first Adam, the first Adam who, who fell in disobedience to the first temptation in the midst of a garden full of luscious food. The son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And then it goes directly into the temptation of the last Adam. In a wilderness with no food. So this confrontation of Jesus, the last Adam, against Satan in the wilderness... After 40 days, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. But by every word, that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, notice, the one I want to get to is how Jesus answered the devil's eisegesis of a text with exegesis of a text. In verses 9 through 12, this third temptation is, is some kind of vision-like experience. When he was shown all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, that was some kind of visionary experience. We don't know exactly what it was, but it was something beyond what we'll ever experience. So here, with this other temptation, Jesus is taken out to the temple, likely on the southeast corner of the royal porch, that um, historians tell us extended out over the Kidron Valley. Josephus, the first century historian, he writes that just looking over the edge made people dizzy. There they are. Satan, in desperation, having been defeated by Scripture thus far, in his last-ditch effort, attempts also to use Scripture. He twists it, contorts it. He misuses God's word to lead God's son into temptation. Is it a sin to be tempted? Of course not. Jesus was tempted and never sinned. So he, he quotes Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. The, the devil attempts to, to, to make this a demonstration of Jesus' trust, trust in the Father as the Son. That's the temptation. Prove your trust. Leap off the porch. And this was to force God's hand in performing a miracle of rescue. This would, of course, attract a large crowd. Just stand on the edge and let all the people see you jump. They'll follow you. The Lord will hold you up. That's what the scripture says. Jesus answered and said to him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This happens all the time. 
with us. Perhaps not, you know, the temptation to jump off a building, but to walk into situations and say to God, God, if you really love me, then this particular situation, whatever this situation is, what will turn out this, that, or the other way, the way that I please. And Lord, I know um, I have been disobedient. I have been quenching your spirit. I've been drowning out the sound of your voice. As scripture has been bombarding me as of late, I know I'm running into disobedience, but if you just let me finish my course with success, I'll do what you've been prompting me to do for months. That's putting the Lord your God to the test. We do it all the time. An attempt to control God rather than to follow God in obedience. So like Adam, Jesus was tempted to disbelieve God's word, pitting one part against another. Here's the temptation. To, to think that the Father was not telling the whole truth. That's a lie from, where did that originate? In the garden. Surely you won't die. As a matter of fact, God knows in the day that you eat of it, you'll be like God. Jesus wielded the word defensively as well as offensively with every temptation. And the devil fled. The right text in his proper context to fend off the enemy, to attack the enemy standing against him. That's how we do it. That's the sword of the Spirit. Notice, interwoven throughout all the armor is what? Text. Interwoven throughout every piece of armor, is all kinds of prayer. All kinds of prayer. Now, I said this is our last study, and you might be wondering, wow, prayer is so important. Why are we bypassing? And, and our brother Ray will start a new series a week, two weeks from today, yeah, after, after Easter. He's going to do an 11-week series on the warnings in Scripture. We wanted to proceed with a study on the whole armor of God before we get to the warnings of Scripture so you can stand confident in the truth. Prayer is vital to that. But as you know, if you were with us, uh, we did a series on prayer here in Sunday school. It, what was it, 18 weeks? So we've covered all the bases. So if you think I'm, I'm, I'm being shorthanded here in, in, oh, he's passing over prayer. We did 18 weeks, so go back and listen online. Okay. So Paul um, accents that the church must be constant and persistent in prayer. Verse 18, after the sword, the spirit, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Pray on my behalf, says Paul, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth, 
to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. You're going to see today, that's what Pentecost is all about, right there. People have mad ideas about Pentecost. We're going to straighten it all out today, in case you happen to be one. (laughs) It's about speaking boldly for Christ. That's it. Steve Ball says this. He wrote a commentary on Ephesians. I think it came out last year. He's a theologian up here, up the road at Westminster. Speak with regard to prayer and the whole armor of God. Everyone in the foxhole is a believer. Oh God, get me out of this alive and I promise fill in the blank. Genuine believers pray inside and outside the foxhole even when the shelling stops because their mortal enemies never sleep. End of quote. Isn't that great? And men, after our study in Revelation on Thursdays in April, we're going to do a book from Steve Baugh on the kingdom of God that's now. So let me leave you with this um, glorious, powerful, comforting truth. 1 John 4, verse 4. You are from God, little children. You've overcome them. You've overcome false teaching. You've overcome the temptation to fall prey to the doctrine of the Antichrist. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Is Satan great? Yeah, as in power. Christ is greater. Satan's powerful. God is infinitely more powerful. All power Satan has has been given to him by God. He's a creature. The he who is in the Christian includes all three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And notice, John does not say, greater are you than Satan, but greater is he that is in you than Satan. It's God in you that provides the assurance and the victory. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand. Taking up the whole armor of God. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the armor. 
finished work of your son, Jesus Christ, who's ascended to your right hand, who rules and reigns, has sent his Holy Spirit to, to indwell us, empower us, sanctify us, to keep us sealed for eternity. We thank you for his name's sake. Amen. Comments? Questions? Sir? Well, not in those direct words, as was used in, in the wilderness temptation. We know in Colossians, Jesus, uh, we, we anticipate um, a renewal of all things. Everything, the universe was cursed by God because of sin. Um, that, that Satan, we, we read, um, is the ruler of this age. Christ has come, um, and he ransacked the house, if you will. He... He, you know, unless you, you bind the enemy or you bind the one who sacked the house, um, there's nothing you can do until the man is bound. So Jesus told stories like this to validate that, no doubt. And the demonic realm that, that ran crazy prior to Christ's coming, um, we, we see that the first ones to recognize who Christ is wasn't a human being. It was the demons who indwelt particular people who through their vocal cords cried out, we know who you are, you are the son of God. We know in Revelation that Satan has been, upon the ascension of Christ, has been cast out of heaven um, and, and, and not able to um, throw accusations against God's elect because Christ now stands there in resurrected, glorified form, representing us, having redeemed everything as the last Adam was lost in the first Adam. We know that. So we understand, as we put it all together, that what he said in that wilderness temptation, um, no doubt um, that dominion was yielded up, and it would take a man to redeem it all back. So what was promised in Genesis 3 is that through the seed of the woman, one will come who will crush your head. And then the rest of the Bible unfolds that story of God's plan of redemption through you know, calling a man to himself, Abraham, through you, um, you will become a nation, and through that nation, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And of course, um, um, that one promise funnels out um, to 12 tribes that become a nation. The nation um, is established, and through that nation, through that line, comes the one who fulfills it all, and it comes back out the other side of the funnel and now spreads out worldwide. Um, he has dominion of it all as the resurrected God-man. Correct, in his disobedience. So the last Adam comes in perfect obedience, redeeming it all back as a man. Yeah, makes sense. Sorry? Correct. Very good. Yes. Yeah. Claim to deity. Yeah. Yeah. Claim a deity. For I am one with the Father. <laughs> Amen. Good. So I hope that was helpful over the weeks. Applicable. We need the armor of God. Amen? God bless you, beloved. We'll see you in 15.